1: Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music is Not a Genre, the Music is Everything edition. Uh, In this edition, I take a musical concept, idea, fact, belief, opinion, philosophy, I discuss it at length, I unravel it, I bust myths, Uh, I connect it to things outside the music world. Uh, This is, uh, for those of you listening on uh, podcast platforms and not watching on my YouTube channel or on Patreon, this is uh, Season 3, Episode 5. Uh, so welcome. We're, we're deep into it, if you're already here at Season 3. And thank you for listening. Thank, uh, thanks to those of you who are watching on uh, my YouTube channel. Uh, the, for anyone who subscribes, who uh, clicks, who shares, who comments. I love comments. I love conversation. And especially thank you to my Patreon supporters. Uh, who get to see this first. Uh, this week is a doozy. You're in for it. Let me just tell you, you're in for it. And I'm super excited about this. Um, I'm excited about the general topic, and I'm excited about the specifics that I get into afterwards. So uh, instead of talking about it, let me just do it. Today, as always, you know, I start by reading the this uh, wonderful text I have here. Here, screenshot. You ready? All right. If you're watching on, on video, screenshot. If not, the text is below uh, for those of you on the other platforms. Yeah, that's right. Those are all my notes. And uh, let me get into it. This week's title is, What's a Chronology? Chronology, And why does it make the BGs way more awesomer? When David Bowie died five years ago, I righted a big wrong. I'd been aware of him since the 1970s, knew some of his hits and 80s music and offshoots like Tin Machine, someone I really respected but kept at arm's length. So I fixed that and listened to his entire catalog. I was immediately hooked, not just on Bowie's legendary shape-shifting music, but on the whole idea of listening to entire catalogs. So I did it again and again and again. I'm still doing it. At last count, I've gone through well over 50 artist discographies. Truth be told, it's probably more like 150 to maybe 1,000 if you count all the short-lived bands. I call this a chronolography. It's a mashup of chronology and discography, and here's how I do it. I start from the artist's earliest extant recordings and proceed chronologically from album to album, including any non-album singles. I also include solo records from any prominent band member. I read up on each album as I listen, my version of liner notes, including any career or personal info that might somehow connect to the music. And I don't stop until I reach the last recording, which might very well be this year. This can be as few as one or two albums, like with the seminal punk band The Germs, or as many as 50 or more, like if you do The Beatles and then every Beatles solo career. There are so many reasons why this is a worthy undertaking. Greater appreciation for the artist's talent beyond their more popular output. Better understanding of where the artist is coming from and what they're trying to achieve. Discovery of hidden gems and creative offshoots they may not be known for. A detailed illustration of how the artist developed through the years. Placing the artist's work in context, both as a part of their own career and as a response to the broader music scene. Oh, and it's fun and immersive, and most of the music is incredibly good. Plus, this is key, it takes a lot less time than you think. A lot less than binging a TV show. And you can do it anywhere. Now here's where it gets way better. A chronography tells a story, not just of that music or that career, but of the times they existed, the people involved both in and out of the band, music development as a whole, how the industry and other external pressures influenced the music or definitively didn't, and even a chunky slice of society and humanity in general. It's like history meets documentary mixed with a novel and culminating in a time-lapsed work of art. It's so much more important than just a musical exercise we all have preconceived notions of pretty much everyone and everything we've ever encountered. The judgments that shape those notions are largely based on the least amount of information possible. We might know a few songs or one era when the band was hugely popular, when commerce coincided with creativity in a big way. We decide if the band was good or worth liking just from that. And hey, that's fine if that's all you want to do because it's just music, right? No, not right. Why? Because for most people, how you approach one thing that matters is very similar to how you approach everything else. If you're content... To settle for your own underinformed judgment on something as relatively simple as music, how likely is it you dig deeper when it comes to more complex subjects like politics or social or philosophical issues? Or the sum total of a person's life? We get lazy in our thinking, curiosity, and action. We accept headlines and memes and talking, shouting points as truths and as the whole story we follow one source and base our judgments on whatever that source says. If it says a person is evil or awesome or incompetent or brilliant, we don't bother to find out how true or comprehensive any of that is. We end up building our own personal ethos on scraps of knowledge held back from knowing more by fear. And then we live our lives accordingly.
0: I'm saying the foundation of our existence is built with partial truths, outright lies, prejudices, and fear.
1: That by itself is sad, as is this culture's near hatred of true open-mindedness and inquisitiveness. But what's saddest of all is, just like with the chronography, it takes so little time and effort to dig deeper, and we still don't do it. We have a right to our opinions and to voice those opinions how we may. And we're not that different. If you're not bothering to absorb more of the story, chances are neither is the person you hate. What's left behind are not just the whole truth and context and perspective and all that good stuff, but commonality and connection, those things we might see eye to eye on that might help us understand each other and ourselves and bring us together Even in our disagreement, if binging on reality gets us closer to each other and to a truly full life, then those few extra minutes every day are worth it. So that brings up a lot, huh? You know, it's, it's my little trick here with this kind of music is everything subsidiary of Music is Not a Genre. That I take a musical concept and connect it to life, and you know, for some people, that might be like what well, you know. That's kind of like what I said. Music is just a, it's a start, you know, and and it's not really related to anything. How do you do that? For other people, they kind of see it as I see it, which is it's it's not that hard. There, you know, and it's like I've said in other podcasts, there are connections everywhere, and um, if you're really truly looking. For connections, you'll find them, you know, and you will know if they're, if they are true connections, if, you know, they're actual, you know, verified connections. I, you know, I've been through this before. That's kind of what I'm talking about here. But the the point being, this is not such a big trick, you know, And, and yet this week in particular, this issue in particular, this subject is really, it's important to me on both sides, which is sort of always true, but in this case, it's like doubly and triply true. And because you know, let's stick with how I ended my little you know reading here and talk about the the real world concept of this. When I talk about a, a you know immersing yourself in the full picture of something, in understanding context and understanding. Um, a person or movement's place in history and understanding why society, you know, was a certain way at a certain time or why a person might say a certain thing, you know, at a certain time in response to something else or, you know, what the true full picture of any kind of subject or topic is based on, frankly, as complete a history as you can find. And yes, from multiple sources. You know, yes, uh, if one source says, Oh, this guy, you know, uh, believes in this and did this, and that makes him, you know, a jerk or a saint. Uh, check, check that, you know, and see where else you see that, and see if that's been, you know, repeated not by sources that are connected to that other source, but by completely independent sources, you know, and even some sources that you might not like, you know. Um, but the point of but the point of this is when we. When we ignore or deny or just kind of avoid looking into things, we are playing into our, our, our own laziness, our own fear and, and, you know, distrust and all of that stuff. And those kind of things, they grow upon themselves. The more you are that way, you know, just like any habit, the more you become that. And just like any habit, in fact, uh, another music example, I know a lot of people who say, I'm not into new music and I'm kind of afraid to get into it because there's so much of it, I don't know where to start. On the outside, it seems that way. And I mean, yeah, in one sense, you know, part of that is true. But the real truth there is, just like with looking deeper into an issue or a person's life uh, who a person is or a chronography or whatever you want to say it doesn't take that much time it doesn't take that much effort you want to get into new music you you know find a source that you trust and you start there and then you expand from there and see where it goes and you will all of a sudden start saying oh i like this i don't like that and before you know it you're in the new music not uh you know any large percent of it because none of us are but enough of it that you're, you're now a part of the contemporary music world with, I don't know, anywhere from 30 minutes to 5 minutes of effort. And that can apply to every single other topic, subject, you know, thing in the world. If there's something out there you have a strong opinion of, or that means a lot to you, or means a lot to people you know, and you have a certain impression of it, and that impression is causing a certain emotional response, a certain intellectual response. All of that is valid, but my contention is don't, you know, don't trust the first impression. It may be right. It may be the whole truth. It may be just part of the truth, or it may be completely untrue. There There is a huge value Things like fear and anger and all that stuff diminish greatly. I mean, this is just fact. Whether it's science or anecdotal, it's fact. Those things diminish greatly the more that connection happens, the more that discovery happens. Um, that whole knowledge is power idea, you know, that, that whole uh, the, the things we don't know we fear. When you know them, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change your opinion. In And my, my belief is this, if... If you're afraid that learning more about something is going to change your opinion, then how strong was your opinion to begin with? You know, how well-founded is it? Or how much do you really believe it? Are you clinging to it because it's a comfort? You know, and things like that. And, you know, a lot of that stuff, it it doesn't come from people. You know, I've had this discussion with a lot of people. and, And the thing is this. As a prejudice, a person who's smart, who's inquisitive, who's always looking for more of the truth or more of the picture, etc., etc., might make a a knee-jerk judgment about about someone who doesn't do that and say, oh, they're dumb, you know. But that is just not true. First of all, that's a judgment call 100% across the board, you know. Like, dumb, smart, all that's a judgment call. But second of all, it's not about... How intelligent you are, or, or you know how your brain works, or anything like that, uh, or how people judge that—it's—it's about—it's—it's it's about the willfulness of what you des- how you decide you're going to live your life. If you're going to live your life as a person who says, "Oh no, no, I'm not going to read that. I'm not going to look into that. I'm not going to watch that. I'm just going to kind of you know whatever it is I listen to or watch or read. I'm going to take in. That's going to be enough for me. That's it. That's not." that's not stupidity you know it's just it's just uh intellectual laziness you know it's emotional it's an emotional blockage more than anything else and it it that's the part like i said that's the part that's the saddest to me because and in the most frustrating because though that small but extremely powerful bit of a blockage and and laziness is really the cause of, you know, almost 100% of everything that happens to any large group of people in this world or even an individual. In that, like I said, we're basing our own personal beliefs, our ethos, on, on the limited amount of knowledge we have that comes from uh, not wanting to know more because of fear. And, and and if you extrapolate that and say, then everything we do and say is based on that. You know, how crippled we are as, uh, as humans in a society if we we're interacting with other people or with other ideas based on that. So you can see how, if you make that broader, how a bunch of people who have that same mindset about the same thing will then, you know, band together in a certain way and become this, you know, us group and then the them group are the people who believe something opposite and it again it doesn't mean that those things are things that you will all of a sudden disbelieve you may really staunchly believe something that someone else believes the opposite of but in between all of that is the connective tissue that makes us all part of this world and there's and the thing is there's way more connective tissue than there than there you know are differences just like we we may not look a bit like our neighbor or talk like them or act like them. And yet, you know, and and you know, you do DNA test, you know, obviously you're going to you're going to get two different results. And yet, like that's like 99.9% of you know is is how much we share with that other person physically, you know, and even the way the you know the brain functions and all of that stuff. Vastly more connective tissue, you know, and and this the you know one quick other point before I get into the second part of this, which I'm psyched about, is that um a lot of this stuff is propagated hugely by people who are who have agendas, you know whether it's a personal agenda or it's an agenda of power or money or fame or things like that, and so you know our willingness to accept what's being fed to us and not looking more into it, whether it's laziness, fear, whatever you want to call it, uh, um, is is being compounded and promoted by those forces. So we are, you know, even the people we dislike the most and we disagree with the most, many of them. I can't, you can't say all. I can't ever say all, but many of them are victims of the power structure and and the you know systemic issues in this in this world and and how fear is promoted and stuff like that um so you know look into things and whatever else i was saying that's very important but i'm done with that section I'm going back to the beginning of this talk into music and I'm going to do something a little different from what I normally do with this Music is Everything edition of this podcast. And that is, I'm going to take a specific band and dive into that band and explain the chronography of the band to illustrate how awesome it is and how it works. right? And that's where the title comes from. If you are alive and breathing and uh, past a certain age, you know of a band called the Bee Gees. Odds are, when you hear that, most people initially will think disco in the 1970s and Saturday Night Fever. If you're older or know a little more about their music, you might think uh, the kind of uh, psychedelic pop and soft rock of the, you know, or even early rock and roll of the 1960s and early 1970s. But... Beyond that, I would venture to say that the majority of people don't know anything else. You know, they'll know, they might know there were three brothers. There was a fourth brother who had a solo career. Um, Three out of four of them are now dead. You know, kind of factual stuff. Um, You know, that they existed and, you you, you know, did music beyond that. Maybe you don't even know that. Uh, but chances are that's, you know, you you know, if anything, their disco period and their period before, before that. Um, now, yes, part of this was prompted by the awesome documentary that uh, came out um, shortly before the uh, recording of this podcast. And, uh, you know, but most of it was prompted by me deciding, finally... I'm going to knock them off my list. I have a list. You know, if I've done, let's say, 54 bands with substantial, you know, uh, uh, substantial output their entire career and the solo careers of certain band members, uh, there's probably another hundred on the list that I really do want to get to. And the BGs were one of them. And I said, well, this is a perfect time. Why would I not do it right now after being inspired by that documentary, et etc. et cetera? Right, so um I went, and just like I said in the beginning of what what how I do a chronography, I went and took a look at their discography online. I dial everything up either on Spotify or youtube. that's just if you can't find it in those places, search a little more, you might find something that's not on there, but chances are you won't um that's just that's just kind of how it is. There are a lot of things on YouTube that aren't on Spotify for one reason or another probably because they were not reissued by the whatever record company owns the rights so i went back to 1963 when the brothers were in their teens um i think they were all in their teens it might have been no i think they were all in their teens and um They, of course, were from Australia, although, you know, born in Britain, so they're, you know, that kind of, they have, like, dual touchstones as far as where they're from, and they released a bunch of singles from 63 to 64 that were not on any album, uh, their earliest recordings, uh, I believe most, if not all of them, were written by Barry, the oldest, um, and listen to those. And then following that, and again, this is not on, this I found on YouTube, 65 and 66, they released two albums only in Australia. And again, most of those songs were written by uh, Barry. And um, they were pretty awesome. I mean, that, those albums in particular really reflect uh, the kind of Beatles influence and the, you know, the the skiffle and all the things that were going on at the time in the early 60s in Britain and apparently in Australia and eventually in the States. And you can can hear that. And to hear a band that you think of as, you know, uh, slick dance disco music or psychedelic pop, just straight up rock out, you know, in that early kind of rock and roll way or mid-period early, is amazing, it's awesome, and they they there are songs where they sound tremendously like the Beatles or like other British invasion bands, and yet those two albums did not cross over. Someone uh, from Britain heard, I think, the last one, the second one, and they were brought over to Britain to record the next one, which is the first of I believe four albums released from 67 to 69 that were all done uh that were all released internationally and that's when they broke that's when they broke uh in the in the states which is where we started to you know this is where our consciousness of them you know really began chances are although if you're listening abroad hello i want to visit you uh and those songs had some of that early rock and roll and were diving into like psychedelic pop and the the summer of love kind of pop and i'm really uh you know, a Chamber Pop and Dream dream Pop and all of that thing with, again, elements of rock and uh, really solidly established them as hit makers, you know, like huge hit makers. Um, words and I Started a Joke and the New York Mining Disaster 1941, I believe it's called. Yeah, I'm terrible with names, terrible. Uh, that was their bit, their first period of huge success to the point where... Robin, one of the twins, uh, Morris is the other, of course, uh, decided, I need to spread my wings. And he went out and did a solo album. And so the next album they did, which I think was in 70, was just Barry and Morris. And Robin put out a solo album, which was decent, you know. Um, it got good reviews back then. I listened to it. It wasn't my favorite thing. Uh, but it was cool to hear. And Like I said, I do the solo albums when it, when it is germane. Um, Morris and Barry also did solo albums back then. They weren't released to the point where you can't even find them on YouTube. There's a single, I think, from each one of them that I heard. And they were, again, also decent. They all got back together. And during this period from 1970 to 73, they, um... Really explored more of kind of the soft rock and folk and even a little bit of a country tinge and got more experimental. They did a concept album called Odessa and stuff like that. That you know, and Robin came back after that one hiatus and uh, they had a few hits, you know, but were kind of declining in popularity. And you know, I guess they felt it, they knew they wanted to branch out and do some more things, they always had an interest in American soul and funk and things like that. So starting in 1974, they changed producers, they got more into that. And for the next several albums, through, of course, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, and their also smash hit, the follow-up album to that in 1979, Spirits Having Flown, they were just Disco and funk and soul and R&B and, you know, a little shades of their previous incarnation, uh, but no real trace of their early kind of rock and roll or psychedelic stuff. They were immersed in, in the pop and the, and the disco and funk and, and all of that stuff. And what's cool about that is we think of that period, we think, the, think of the movie, boom, that's it. There were, I think, three albums before that movie where they were exploring this uh, type of music. And two of the very well-known songs from Saturday Night Fever did not originate on the movie's soundtrack. They were on previous albums. There's, an al- there's a song called Jive Talkin', which was their first hit in their new incarnation. Um, I think Nights on Broadway was a, somewhat of a hit, too. And then the second, uh, the follow-up, the next album, You Should Be Dancing. It was a surprise to me going, see, and I love this one of the things, surprises, going through this chronography. You find out things that you, you know, you didn't know that are, that are like mini mind-blowing things. You Should Be Dancing didn't originate with Saturday Night Fever. Now those two songs uh, were put on the soundtrack, of course, and honestly, it's what prompted them you know, Robert Stigwood to work with them and say, oh, if I'm doing a, a movie about this article, about the disco scene, well, you guys, like, it just converged to the point where their style fit that perfectly, you know? Um, and that's the period we know them best for. But if you know anything about music history, and this is where the whole, like, broader music history comes in when you're doing uh, chronography like this, you know that uh, there was a giant backlash to disco. Disco sucks. Era. You either like disco or rock and roll. Now, as I talked about this in other podcasts, I'm not going to go deep into it except to, to repeat because I think it bears repeating that the primary backlash for this was because disco was rooted in uh, the cultures of, uh, you know, LGBTQ and people of color. And so naturally, mainstream America, once they started getting more wind of this, were like, no you know, white bread rock and roll, fuck all those people, and so, you know, they convinced a lot of listeners that disco was terrible music, and that they, you know, which, uh, unfortunately, you know, other things like soul and funk got lumped into there, and the whole thing crashed and burned, along with the careers of many of those people. Some were able to transition out of it, do other things, but very, very many were not, you know. Fortunately, a lot of that music came back in the 80s in a different form. Dance music and, you know, and that the kind of 80s, you know, pop dance and stuff. Very happy that, you know, that happened. And again, I did an entire podcast on uh, the history of dance music from that period. Uh, what the Bee Gees did, unfortunately, was they just, they crashed. In terms of popularity, in terms of record sales, in particular in the United States, although I think in that period elsewhere as well. From 81 to 87, they only released two albums in those <laughs> in those years. Um, and neither of those albums did very well. So they branched out, and Barry wrote, and and the, and the others, but especially Barry, wrote songs for other people, like uh, the huge hit Islands in the Stream for Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers, and so many other hits. He did some stuff with... Um, Diana Ross, and uh, uh, I believe Tina Turner and Donna Summer and some people like that. Um, so they're survivors. They're the you know the songs were the thing for them. Whatever style they were doing, if it's a good song, then, you know, and a good performance. So they worked with other people. And that's how they kept their spirit going in between those albums. Except for, and this is where it really got interesting for me, except for Robin. Right. So Morris did a little something with a movie somewhere in the eighties. Uh it was a very kind of country-ish kind of music, and it was all it's kind of awesome. He I like his kind of rootsy feel. Barry did his own thing with the pop music and the and the, you know, light, light soul music, however you want to call it. Uh rubber soul, as the Beatles called it, and that's what the name of that album really means, because rubber is light skinned, let's say. Um And then did a movie soundtrack for a movie called uh, Hawks, I believe, uh, in 88, I don't know, uh, 86 to 88. But Robin put out three solo albums from 83 to 85 that were like new wave, techno, dance, pop, and... I gotta say that most of that material is just freaking awesome. It's way different from any other BG stuff that came before it and did actually influence a little bit of what came after it, BG's-wise. But it's like, I say it's like the alternate alternate universe of 80s music where in another universe where uh, people from the States didn't hang on to their prejudices based on the disco sucks and all of that stuff, this, you know, they would have had enough cachet to have you know, their stuff promoted more in the States, and this music would have had... There would have been several hits. One or two from the handful of, you know, Bee Gees albums, but I think quite a few from Robin Gibbs' solo work. Look them up. Two of them are on Spotify. One I had to go to YouTube on, but man, awesome. Just go do it. It'll change... I mean, all of this should, but this particular will change your notion of who the Bee Gees were and you know, somewhat are, right? And let me mention in passing that I did during this period listen to all of Andy Gibb's work as well from the late 70s straight up until his, you know, death 10 years later. He had a very short career and most of it was very sad because of his uh, substance issues. Um, and uh, worth listening to, though. So, you know, check those out too. Then came... You know, so they did that album in 87, didn't do that well. They might have had a little bit of play, oh, you know, internationally. Uh, Then came the next period, 89 to 91. This was their comeback. Not in the States, because, you know, we hold on to our limited knowledge and prejudices. But in the rest of the world, they had a pretty damn huge comeback, especially their, I want to say their 91 album. Uh, One, I believe it was called which I think the title track was a huge, huge hit. And I'm sad that I knew almost nothing about any of the, probably nothing about any of this music. Remember growing up in that era, being immersed in music of all kinds and had no knowledge of any of this because they were blacklisted from the States still. Nobody would touch them, right? And they weren't yet at a point where they were like, legendary or veteran status even though by then they had been you know performing for 25 years they hadn't quite gotten there so they didn't cross that threshold so it was this between period and that's sad to me uh but worth looking up there's some stuff like the 89 album it suffers a little production wise and there's a little bit kind of a you know treacly pop feel to it but as with everything they do, every album is worth listening to. There's some great stuff on there. The 91 album, same thing. Um, a little stronger, but same thing. And then, ha, you know, you look back to the periods in your music history that you loved the most. And you focus on the bands that you knew then. So let's say, for example, in 93, for, for, you know, for me, in, you know, in part, it was Nirvana. It was Pearl Jam. It was the grunge scene. It was, uh, but it was also some of the pop stuff, or you know, it was uh, Beast, you know, Beastie Boys, and, and uh, some some early '90s hip hop. Is I think my favorite era for that as well. What you don't necessarily think of is that most, I mean, most of the bands that existed before then that had any substantial career and success were still at it, doing their thing. Many of them just touring and maybe playing their hits catalog or whatever, but maybe an equal amount, if not more, putting out new material and really trying to make a go of it. And so I was looking forward to every period here, I always do, but in particular this period because I was surprised to see the, uh, the, the, you know how many albums they put out. I think it, there were maybe uh, two albums uh, in the mid 90s and then one in 2001 which was their last as a trio, and it was it was interesting to me to hear. Well, where were they going to go with this? Were they going to cling to the kind of a, you know a light R and B pop feel with Robin interjecting some of his you know dancy stuff and all of that, or were they going to you know be influenced a little bit by what was going on in the rest of the world? And it was uh, more the second than the first. they got kind of got back to their roots. They got back to the way they uh, wrote and produced songs back in the early 70s and the late 60s, still maintaining some of that mid-70s flavor and funkiness as well uh, for quite a few of them. And uh, with Robin having explored what he did, he still brought some of that Eurodance kind of feel to a lot of what he did as well. And he was just an amazing songwriter um, and singer on his own. I'll keep saying that. And so those albums struck me as a real strength period for them because they were able to abandon the so-called need to adhere to a certain production style. And they did finally pass that threshold where they were becoming, you know, these kind of, this kind of legends and veterans and people that were revered elder statesmen in a way um and even though they only still again had very 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 minor success in the states these all these albums did very well overseas uh the 2001 album in particular man that's a powerhouse of work and it's back to what i i've said in other podcasts where like i listened to all of russia's catalog and i like their early stuff or their second period stuff when they were really developing and uh, and then they went through their growing pains or whatever you want to call it um, and hardcore fans i'm sure love that too but then when they emerged out of that and and didn't no longer had a need to worry about you know adhering to a, a hit formula their stuff i think in many ways was stronger than their earlier stuff you know and a lot of what's on this 2001 album I say the same thing about, right? And then, you know, we get to the next, uh, the second to last period, in the way I'm classifying it, which is, in 2003, Morris died, and they decided, I mean, I guess decided, you know, or didn't decide, or however it was, they, they wouldn't work, you know, Morris was kind of the glue You know he mediated between Barry and Robin, who were uh, both had their differing ideas. In fact, Frick, I just I just saw an interview with Barry, and he again mentioned, you know, uh, Robin's difference in you know musical philosophy and style. And we're talking because he's just released a new album, and he that's why he was interviewed, twenty twenty one or twenty twenty. And he's still talking about this. So there was a very slim chance they were going to do much work together without the glue. So, of course, Robin put out a couple of solo albums. He put out one solo album that, again, just incredibly strong. It was a little more evolved out of the, the Nancy techno. Not that it needed to be, but it was. And uh, a lot of it was just really, really good. And then, of course, he died in 2012 and was working on an album at the time, along with, I believe, uh, some uh, musical that never emerged. I think I think about the Titanic, I don't know. Um, with his son, I want to say, and, and someone else. And his last album was released posthumously, and, uh, and a lot, his son is on there quite a bit, as a matter of fact, and is a really good, strong, heartfelt album. I, I recommend that as well. It's 2014, it was released two years after he died. Um, and that's, and, and, you know, I'll stop here before I get to the last period and just give you a quick rundown of, you know, the brothers. So we know about Andy and his short life. He died at the age of 30. It's very sad. He had an amazing voice, very smooth voice in many ways, probably the smoothest voice of all four brothers. Um, but his material was not, it wasn't at the top of my list. Great hits, though. Uh, I Just Want to Be Your Everything. Great song, you know, things like that. He worked with Olivia Newton-John, you know, another Australian, another great voice. Uh, Morris, the rootsier, here, had a more of a country blues. There's a song of his that was on uh, one of the Bee Gees albums that he remade, I believe, later on in the 80s, that I actually want to cover. It's that good. Um, and his voice is, is just... It, it is... It's. Ex- I don't know how to describe it except to say it's just a solid, good voice that is grounded in his body, right? And, uh, you know, Barry, the one everyone thinks of when they think of singers for um, the Bee Gees, even though most of the Bee Gees' hits were sung by both Barry and Robin in lead, sometimes in unison, sometimes harmony, and you often couldn't tell which was which. Except the more you listen, the more you can. And Barry's voice, I will say this. He transitioned really well into the falsetto stuff, right? Because he gave it a little grit in the way that, like, Frankie Valley gave falsetto grit. Not everybody does that, right? But his 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 kind of rock voice had a beefiness to it that I missed until he started bringing it back a little bit. And I don't think it ever fully really came back, maybe by choice. Uh, but... He's, his is the kind of voice that when you hear it, you immediately know who it is. And that leaves, of course, Robin, my personal favorite, which is funny because their voices mesh so well sometimes you couldn't tell them apart. And yet Barry's vibrato is like uh, you know, watching a slow motion tape, right? And Robin's vibrato is as fast as you could possibly think a, a vibrato would be. You know, like it's like Tiny Tim's vibrato, right? Or close to that. And uh and yet Robin had the sweeter voice. Robin did more with his voice, and else, and it's because I think he was more curious about what else was going on in the music world, and so he wanted to get into techno and other forms of pop and dance and and all of that stuff, and uh and and so asked of himself to expand in those ways, and his voice expanded in those ways. And so his, I think, arsenal of what he could do with his voice was just more expansive. And I actually started to identify a little bit more with Robin because of how, uh, how much he didn't want to be hemmed in by genre, you know, and by, and by you know, he wanted to um, learn how to do more with what he could do, either in his voice or songwriting production and stuff like that and you know so anyway those are my takes i'd love to hear your takes but let's get to the last period 2016 to now barry released two solo albums both of which super strong the 2016 one is 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 great honestly it's really really good it's got a lot of freaking blues and roots and it's you know it's uh it's it's a solid band album and what we forget is that robin and barry played uh, i'm sorry Morris played bass and Robin played guitar. And I think Morris played some other instruments too. He might've been a drummer and stuff like that. I don't think Robin really played anything if maybe a little keyboard, but Morris also played keyboard. Like they were a band band. Like they actually were not just singers, you know, fronting a band. They were also a band. And you can hear that on the 2016 Barry Barry uh, Gibb album. And then 2021, like a week or two ago, he released... Country versions of hits from the BGS in his solo career, and like and with featured artists on each one, and like any of those albums, I don't care if you're talking Tony Bennett's collaborations or you know whatever else, they're hit or always hit or miss for me. Based on a, do I like the other artist, and and you know B, what kind of compromises are being made in the production, the performance to accommodate this other artist? Some of those songs uh, are. Super, super, super worthy. Uh, you know, redos of the original hits, and others are nice. None of them are bad, but th- but that's where we are. So this chronography took us, and it was Barry saying, "I want to get in the country because I've always been in the country," and that's also cool. Livy Newton John's on there. She has it was way more of a country background than people realize, because again, they think of Greece or I want to get physical, right? Anyway. Um, this chronography took us from the early 1960s to today, to this very week or last week, and all the things that happened in between there. So you can understand why it's so exciting to me and why it's so valuable and how these skills can be applied to things other than music. Uh, but I hope, you know, I hope you, you know, kind of uh, piqued your curiosity either to maybe dive into one of the artists that you'd like to know more about and and go through their chronography or uh, the Bee Gees in particular. And uh, boy, there's vastly more about the Bee Gees that I discovered that I could possibly fit into a podcast. So whether it's the Bee Gees or some other band, I urge you to go do that. And then go do it with a subject that's you know more pertinent to the you know the workings of society and, and politics and stuff. Uh, and either way, I want to know what you think of all this. What do you think of the Bee Gees in my you know, complete opinions about who, who I liked better as far as the, you know, brothers and their albums. Uh, what do you think of the whole idea of a chronography or how any of the, these skills apply to other things in the world? Comment. Let me know. Because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you. And uh, thanks to all my Patreon supporters. And I'll see you next time.